If you would open your Bibles to Romans 8, uh, starting at verse 18. The second half of Romans 8, one of the sweetest passages in all of Scripture. I'm going to date myself a little bit this morning <coughs> by my introductory uh, uh, reference here. When I was a kid, there was a particular candy uh, that I liked that you might remember. Uh, it was called Now and Laters. Anybody remember this? Now and Laters? I brought a picture just to jog your memory. Doesn't that take you back right there? Just seeing that package, knowing how hard it was to open, remember? It was always crimped closed. And uh, trying to get these little things out of there. If you don't know what this is, these were kind of like a starburst maybe, but a lot harder, a lot stickier, a lot chewier. A lot better. <laughs> if any of us, probably any of us, uh, if you're my vintage, were to eat it now, it would simply rip the fillings right out of our teeth instantly. <laughs> I think it was probably designed by a dentist drumming up business. You know, that's my thought on that. Now and laters. And this particular candy came to mind as I was sort of thinking about the, the concept of our, of our passage here. In fact, this phrase, it's sort of funny. Uh, now and later, I mean, once referred to this, you know, childhood candy, still an appropriate phrase for anyone who's my age. Uh, but now it's changed a little bit. It's not just about a candy. It's sort of a uh, watchword of dietary wisdom now. In other words, be thoughtful about what you eat now considering what it's going to do to you later, right? Coffee, for example. Okay, I'm a coffee fan. But there's a certain point in time where I have to cut it off. I'm not doing all decaf now, because what's the point? But, uh, you know, 4 o'clock is absolutely no way, nothing past, and usually it's by noon, right? Maybe some of you are like, caffeine, that was years ago. I've already crossed that threshold. Or other kinds of foods, maybe spicy food. Now and later... Greasy food, for some of you, dairy products, now and later, used to just be a candy, and now it's a watchword of dietary wisdom, right? But this same phrase, actually, or this concept, kind of is how Paul organizes his message in this chapter, the second half of chapter 8 How uh, here. In other words, the relationship between what God is going to do later affects how Christians live now. Or, or to put it in that one sentence at the top of your handout here, the future restoration helps us cope with our current disintegration. Romans 8, starting at verse 18. <coughs> I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning, as in the pains of childbirth, right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? 
But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. So our first point this morning is this. Our confidence in future glory should ease our present suffering. Uh, The reality is this. Every creature, every creature experiences suffering and decay presently. Uh, And if you'll notice, the suffering that's mentioned here, it's not specifically a kind of suffering that comes, say, from persecution or, or some specific malady. The suffering here is just general. It's the kind of suffering that we all experience, the general decay that every living thing is going through. Maybe the easiest and, and most agreed upon point that I'll preach all morning long is this. Every human body is in the process of decay. You feel it? I do, and if you don't, you're lying or not attend, attending to yourself. In general, we might refer to this as aging. We're all getting older. Diseases come beckoning for us. Illness happens. I had mine two weeks or last week for two weeks. We have graying hair, which I would love to have, graying hair. I wish I had that be an improvement. Loss of strength, loss of energy, loss of memory. I'm going through that right now. We become prone to injuries, some that we can explain. I rolled my ankle. Okay, I rolled my ankle. Some we can't explain. We call them sleep injuries in our house. I woke up this morning and I'm injured. All I did was lay in bed. I don't know what happened, right? Your cholesterol goes up. Your blood pressure goes up. Cancers of every kind have to be checked with increasing frequency. And the reality is, for most of us, or almost all of us, we we peaked a few years ago, right? Or a few decades ago, or many decades ago for some of you, right? If you were to go out right now and try to secure increased life insurance for yourself, it would cost more than it did a decade ago. Why is that? Because you're closer to death and decay now, right? And the insurance company knows. So Merry Christmas. (laughs) We're all a day closer closer to death and decay. I'll be honest, our our family experienced quite a lot of this uh, in the last month. Uh, It's been one of those kinds of months. Uh, For starters, my 90-year-old grandmother passed away three weeks ago. And um, she is a believer. She is with the Lord. She does not yet have her resurrected body. That's to come. But she's with the Lord, and I'm glad for that. And it was a relief when she passed because, frankly, she had sort of outlived herself, if that makes any sense. Her hands were crippled inwards. She couldn't use them anymore. She had outlived two of her sons, and her husband. She did not remember her daughters anymore, even though they came regularly to visit and care for her. Um, There was a pulse, there was a heartbeat, but Grandma Kay wasn't there. So we're relieved. And then a little bit after that, a week later, our dog, Huckleberry, 10-year-old lab, we had to put him down. And it was brutal. We knew it was coming. He was aging. He was getting tumors, as labs do. And then one day, he did not come to the breakfast bowl. And if you have a lab, you know. They just told you, I'm done. And so Gus and I made the difficult drive to the vet, blubbering the whole way, and taking our dog to be put down. It was brutal. And my daughter came home, and she had foot surgery. And then I got sick for a couple of weeks. And then Amy's Land Cruiser had to go in the shop for a repair. 
and it's going to be there for a couple weeks still. And I tell you, for a while there, I was like, we're living a country western song right here at home. <laughs> Everything is in the process of decay. Grandma, the dog, daughter, the car, myself. We're all going downhill. And when we refer to our own bodies, we just think about this as sort of getting older, this kind of decay, something that's happening to all of us. But it's also happening in this celestial body, in the earth itself, in the creation itself, that Paul says. All creation, <clears throat> all creation experiences suffering and decay. So science calls this the second law of thermodynamics, right? That things are moving towards disintegration or entropy. If, you have a home, if you're a homeowner in Fairbanks, Alaska, you know this. You're just fighting off the decay. That's how it goes. Um, and so Paul sort of claims it's not just, you know, the old fellows that are groaning and making old man noises, but even the earth itself. The earth is groaning under its own decay. And I'll give you a couple examples of this, and some of you are going to get defensive, but that's okay. Here we go. Here's some of the ways we can see this. The general warming of our planet. It's happening. July 2023 was the hottest month on record. We see receding glaciers and polar ice caps. When we first moved to Alaska 20 years ago, there were glaciers that you could walk right up to and touch. Now you have to hike to them. So I've seen that just in my time here. Throughout the world, we see an increase in tropical storms. We see an increase in heat waves and massive fires. Think of the town of Paradise, California, which was wiped out. Or Lahaina, Hawaii, wiped out. If you just think about Alaska, anybody who does soil work here in Alaska, you know there's some general changes going on there. In fact, septic tanks used to last 20 to 30 years in Fairbanks, and now they last about 10 because of the general warming of soils. Uh, or I tell you what, you could just look at spruce trees from Talkeetna to Denali Park and just see the devastation that's happening there because the spruce beetles, which used to be killed off during colder winters as things have warmed up, now thrive and are now eviscerating the forest there. These are just things that are happening. Now, I am not an environmentalist, okay? Let me disarm you here. I'm not advocating for their radical solutions, that they often promote. I'm a theologian and a pastor and an Alaskan. And I can see the groaning of the earth, which is subjected to decay and frustration right around me. I can see this. And it is subjected to decay because of sin. Now, the unbelieving world, unfortunately, tends to treat the earth as God and mankind as its saviors. But unfortunately, also, too many Christians in the Christian community treat the earth like garbage as though it was inconsequential how we lived with it. And frankly, I'm of the opinion that that sort of fatalistic view of creation undermines our witness that God made this, made it good, made it for us, and is going to restore it when we don't even care for it. Uh, in fact, if you look at some of the first instructions that God gave to mankind in Genesis 2.15, it says this, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. So I think there's sort of a middle ground responsibility of, of general earth care here, not because it's up to us to rescue it, but I think it's a matter of our witness. Do we really believe it's God's, that he made it, that it's good, that it's for us, and that he put us in here to care for it, or do we not? And I'll give you one example of what I think is responsible care that doesn't deify creation, 
but doesn't just live destroying it. Here's the example. It'll surprise some of you. Hunting. I'm a hunter in Alaska. And I love participating in what fish and wildlife or fish and game uh, as they manage the different populations of herds and, and, and critters throughout Alaska. And they say, hey, in this particular holding capacity, the numbers are too high. The herd's health is down. We need to thin it out so that there's a better food supply for those that are there. And I get to be a part of that conservation. I think that's brilliant. A responsible <laughs> harvest. I do. And I like the meat, too. So um, that's one of the things I love about Alaska. Now, Paul's point here is not one of conservation. Okay? And that's not really the point of my sermon, either. His point is one of perspective and hope and encouragement. Because through Adam's sin, all of the earth fell into decay. The first humans, Adam and Eve, their descendants, all descendants, but also the earth itself. The whole creation fell into decay. Listen to what the Lord says to Adam in Genesis 3, 17. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate the fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. Or as Paul summarizes it in Romans 8, 20, for the, whole, for the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. So again, the Apostle Paul is not calling us to environmental activism, nor am I, but rather to recognize the restorative work of God for all of creation, not just the souls of man, but the world that he made, he will remake. And we should delight in that. So the good news of the gospel claims that God is restoring both his cre creatures and his creation. Overall, the point that Paul is making here is he wants to lift our head and direct our eyes away from the decay in our own lives, in the world around us, and invite us to anticipate a future where both creature and creation are restored. So this brings us to a question. How should we then live, right? To use Francis Schaeffer's phrase, how should we then live? First of all, I'm gonna say this, what not to do. <clears throat> we don't want to be what I'll call theological Eeyores. You remember Eeyore? This pessimist of Winnie the Pooh? So we don't want to be theological Eeyores, which sounds something like this. Well, it's all going to burn anyways. Well, people are just going to do what they want to do. Why bother being a witness? Well, maybe God will just end it all. We're not to be theological Eeyores. If we look at this passage and we see how, we see the tone that Paul sets here, he addresses our attitude as we wait for the Lord's return and restoration. And what we see, some of the words that are used here, first of all, we wait patiently. Not worrying, not wringing our hands, not filled with anxiety. We're patient, as God himself is, right? God is not slow in keeping his promises, but he's patient, not wanting anyone to perish. So we wait patiently as he does. We're to wait eagerly. We want that restoration. 
It's good news, not just for ourselves, not just for our bodies. I love using the phrase bodies to die for. That's what we're going to get one day. But how cool will it be to see the creation of God not subject to frustration, to see all of its goodness and beauty as it ought to be? So we wait patiently, we wait eagerly, and we wait with hope. And this hope is not just wishful thinking, like, I don't know, I kind of hope it happens. It's hope based in something. We have this humble confidence. So verse 23, not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. Now it's interesting here, there's an aspect in which our adoption uh, as sons, all of us, right, men and women, we talked about this, women, this isn't a point to get irritated and say, hey, I'm a woman, I'm a daughter, don't call me a son. No, 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 we want to all be sons here because at the, in the first century world, inheritance came through the line of sons. So God is including you in this inheritance for what is to come. But our inheritance in a sense, or our adoption in a sense, is incomplete until we receive this inheritance of fully restored bodies and creation as it ought to be. So this gracious manner of waiting is also not simply a function of just a strong will and a strong work ethic and and a powerful uh, attempt on our part here. Paul affirms that we have been given a spiritual resource. God, the Holy Spirit, helps us to wait for this future glory. This is our second point. The Holy Spirit helps us in our present struggles. Verse 26. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. So this is really wonderful because Paul's not just telling us, hey, listen, restoration's coming for your bodies, for all of creation, so just suck it up. Just put on your big boy pants and do the best you can. We're told that we have help from God, the Holy Spirit, for our present struggles. Now, two weeks ago, we looked at this, how the Spirit ministers to us inwardly in this, and this was the section that precedes where we are right now, the beginning of chapter eight. I'm not gonna go over that again. But the second part I want to focus on now, which is that the Spirit also intercedes for us in heaven. That is, we have an advocate in heaven to the Father. And this is very good news because we are, all of us, or at least we ought to be, misfits in this world. Some of you are definitely misfits. You're doing fine, okay? But I will say this. If you're fitting comfortably in this world, you may want to reconsider your discipleship. Are you truly following Christ? Because the scriptures are clear. We sort of have one foot in this world and one foot out. We are dual citizens. We're told in Romans not to conform any longer to the pattern of this world, right? But to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. We are not to fit easily here. Uh, I like this, this phrase that we are not to be so earthly-minded that we're no heavenly good. And I like the corresponding phrase. We're not to be so heavenly-minded that we're no earthly good. 
We are to live in tension. In the world, not of the world. We are here on mission, not on vacation. Uh, The words that the Bible uses to describe Christians in the world are aliens, strangers, visitors, foreigners, exiles. This is not our home, right? We're passing through. So my point is this. If we're truly going to be disciples of Jesus, we will be misfits in this world. And the good news is that God has equipped his misfits with the Holy Spirit to deal with the struggles and tensions that come from that. The Spirit is advocating for us in heaven with groans that can't even be expressed. I want to give you an example of this uh, in my life. About probably 15 years ago now, maybe a little longer, <clears throat> uh, we were selling our first home in Fairbanks and looking to uh, buy a bigger home. And there was a home over on uh, China Ridge uh, that was a construction repo. And so it was about half built, it was weathered in, and it was a beautiful home, and it kind of, to me, it really appealed to me, like, wow, it's mostly there, we can get it on the cheap, and then we'll get to finish it how we want. That was really appealing. It was an incredible deal, the tax assessment was way higher than the asking price, and I thought, this is great. So for about six weeks, I would drive over in the morning and park in the driveway um, at this house, and I would pray for it. I'd pray for it. And we were working uh, with the bank because they were the ones that repoed it and we were putting in offers and they kept giving us what they called um, progress updates, which I thought, I don't know that that's quite how the industry works, but nevertheless. And then finally, it was just going so slow, I had a trip and I was heading to Ethiopia with the missions team here from the church. And so I had signed over power of attorney to my wife so she could conduct business. I got on the plane And by the time I got to New York, when I got off the plane, I received a message that the bank had sold the property out from under us for less than we had offered on it to the developer's son. It's been 15 years and I'm almost over it now. (laughs) That was very irritating. And I remember thinking, this is unjust. This is unjust. This is wrong. And I, to be honest with you, took my anger to the Lord, which is, I think, what we ought to do. But I kind of remember praying, Lord, <laughs> I'm going to Ethiopia on a missions trip. You know, maybe you could help a fellow out here. Why this? You know? And I wonder, what did the Spirit's translation of my prayer sound like in heaven? All right, Father, Eric's praying here again. It's been a number of weeks. <laughs> And he thinks he wants this house. Find and want a house. Find and want a place for hospitality. Find and want a place to raise their family. It's fine. But he thinks he wants this house. He doesn't know. He doesn't know. He doesn't know we have something better for him. Way better for him. I don't know. I'm speculating about what that sounded like. But I know the Spirit took my imperfect prayers and prayed with perfect advocacy to the Father on my behalf. And I look back and I say, thank God I did not get what I prayed for, but that the Spirit interceded for me. Verse 28, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn 
among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. And so the point here is that the God of unfailing love has predestined our conformity to Christ's likeness. Now, I think this passage, unfortunately, gets bogged down in this debate of what we call ordo salutis, or the order of salvation. What comes first? Do we believe and then are regenerated, and, or are we regenerated and therefore we believe, and all of these kinds of things. And we get this term predestination in there, and everybody kind of goes all over the place with the debate. And I don't think that's really Paul's point here. We focus too much on predestination and foreknowledge, but the point that Paul is getting at is look at the outcome. It's guaranteed. You will be, Christian. You are predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. You're going to look like Christ one day. You will finally, fully take on his character and nature. You will be conformed and shaped and molded and fashioned to be like Jesus. And Paul's point here is one of assurance, absolute assurance. It will happen. And that's important for us because we live with disappointment and struggle and letdown all the time on this earth, right? Have I told you about my baggage issue with Alaska Airlines <laughs> recently? <laughs> Maybe this month? We had another issue in our, one of our vehicles. We had, a little, we had a little sort of fender bender type of thing and I had to take it into an automotive place in town here to have it fixed. And this happened in August. So I went to schedule an appointment and they said, well, we can look at it in a month. Like, a month? Okay, we have no back window. Okay, a month. And then they called back to say, actually, it's gonna be in another month. So two months wait just to get the appointment. We get it in the shop. It took like another month to get it back. And then when we got it back, the electrical is wrong. So I said, hey, you didn't get this right. We need another part. And they said, yeah, you're right. We'll order the part. That was three weeks ago. It's still not in. This happened in August. It's December. And I shake my fist at, uh, yeah, whoever they are that's working on our car, I won't tell you. We deal with doubt and disappointment and letdowns all the time. Or how about in marriage? Husbands and wives, I've got one for you here. I ran across this funny meme the other day. It says this. Ladies, if your husband has already told you he's going to fix that broken thing in the house, you don't need to remind him every three months to do it. <laughs> Let it sink in. No. I saw that and I was like, ooh, that one hurts. That hurts. But we deal with broken promises and letdowns and disappointments all the time. But Paul is assuring us that God has predestined that we will be conformed to the likeness of Christ. It will happen. So you're a Christian and you're still struggling, let's say, with jealousy, with envy, with lust. This assurance says that one day you will love purely. You're a Christian. It's still hard to tell the truth or to say the honest thing. One day, only truth will proceed from your mouth and beautifully. You're a Christian, but idolatry is still there for you. Plenty of material things that grab your heart's attention in a way that it shouldn't. But one day, you will see God. 
and you'll be compelled to worship him and worship him rightly. How can we be sure? Because God has predestined our conformity to Christ. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. So here's an interesting phrase here, brothers and sisters. We are not just brothers and sisters of one another. But according to this passage, Christ is our brother, which is not a low view of Jesus, but a high view of the glorification that is ours to come. Our big brother Jesus has gone before us in resurrection, in ascension, in glorification. And those are exhibits A, B, and C of what we have to come. We will follow him and be like him. And all of this links back to this idea of sonship. A couple of weeks ago when I preached about this, one of our college students came up and said, what is this inheritance that we get as sons? What is the inheritance itself? This is the inheritance, the character and the nature of Christ, the glorified body, and a restored creation that we get to inhabit. So what shall we say in response to this? Our third point, the proven love of God in Christ assures us of final victory. The question, what shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Half of you are humming Chris Tomlin in your head right now. I know this. You're rocking out in your seat. Let me say it another way. If anyone is against us, of what consequence is that? Uh, about 22 years ago, uh, we had just been hired to take uh, the position of associate pastor here and had flown up. It was like our second week here in the, at the church. And I was out in the foyer and a woman came up to me um, afterwards. <coughs> and this is funny. She still attends here, by the way, so I'll let your imagination go to think of who this might be. She came up to me and she says, I just want you to know, Eric, I didn't vote for you. <laughs> and I, I just remember kind of thinking, all right, well, thanks for trying, you know. I mean, we're here, uh, we're hired, and uh, that's over. Now, truth be told, she was doing a very kind thing. She didn't want me to hear about it from somebody else, and also... She, uh, she said, it's not that I had anything against you. I didn't like the position as it was drawn up and I didn't think you could be successful or anybody could be successful with it. And that's what I was voting against, the position, not you. And I said, oh, that's fine. I guess I'll need your help then. I? And wonderfully, this, this woman has been an incredible supporter over the years and one of our close, close friends and just a lovely person. But I just remember when she told me that, I just want you to know, I didn't vote for you. Well, honey, the die has been cast. The position is secure, right? This has already happened. And that same perspective is here for us in Christ. So someone is against us. We have an adversary. We have an enemy. We have someone coming at us. Smile and shrug. Position is secure. Decision has been made. God's for me. I'm in his family. My future is set. You know, or respond with this. Do you have any idea how much God loves me? <laughs> you could say that too. Verse 32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? 
It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died. More than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also, also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or the sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Those are some beautiful words. I hate to even put any of my own after it. But I'm a preacher, and I will. (laughs) The steadfast love of God has been proven. Throughout scriptures, a Hebrew word in the Old Testament is used to describe the love of God. It's chesed. It means loyal love, steadfast love. Love that does more than just feel. It's more than affection. It's love that acts consistent with its emotion. And this is God's love for us. It's more than affection. It is corresponding action. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? All of us have had someone in our life, now or in the past, who have given us empty words saying, I love you. But God's words, I love you, are carried out in Christ Jesus, proven and verified in him. In fact, what's wonderfully interesting to me here is we think of the Holy Spirit in heaven interceding for us, but the Son is as well. The Son and the Spirit are both in heaven advocating to us or advocating for us to the Father. The Spirit is helping us with our struggles, articulating our prayers. The Son is at the right hand of God saying, I died for all those sins. And the Father who is hearing this representation is not a reluctant Father who doesn't want to forgive. He is a God who loves and loves to forgive and has perfect representation in Christ's sacrifice and the Spirit's advocacy. There is a holy, triune God in heaven. And though our God is high and lifted up, We are perfectly represented there. Which is why the author of Hebrews is able to say, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. So our final point here is this. His sacrifice changed our eternal position and therefore it alters our earthly posture. Because God has given us Christ Jesus, we know that he is withholding no good thing If there was something to withhold, it would have been his beloved son. 
But because he has given him, we know he withholds no good thing. Which means that painful experience that we're going through right now has already been run through the filter of God's love. That loss, that difficulty that is crushing our hearts, that too has run through the grid of his love. So last week, Pastor Adam preached about when we go through difficulties and struggles, we're to continue to look upward. And this passage agrees with that and adds to it other dimensions of our vision. We can look forward, the glorification to come of both creatures and creation. We look upward. We see the advocacy of the Spirit and the Son to the Father presently. And we can look backwards and see that God has already given us Christ Jesus and know he is withholding no good thing. These are the resources we need to live well now because of later. Let's pray. Father, thank you for orchestrating the plan of salvation, which is through your Son and by your Spirit, and ultimately to you. We praise you that we are yours. We are misfits in this place because it's in decay, subject to frustration and rotting. But we know that you are restoring all things. As you say in Revelation, behold, I am making all things new, including this earth, including your people. And we look forward to and long for that day. So help us to wait eagerly and patiently and with hope. So we delight in what you've done for us in Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.